0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. My name is Steve Edwards, filling in as host today for Chuck, who's feeling a little under the weather. I'm from somewhat warmer and uh, rainy Portland. And with me today on our panel, we have Austin Stegosaurus. Hey, <laughs> hey, we're from San Diego. Stegosaurus is not his last name. That's just his nom de plume. Dean Vensky. Hello from Christchurch, New Zealand. Devin Duldelau, did I say that right, Devin, Devlin?
1: Yeah, uh, hello
0: from Oslo, Norway. Oslo, Norway, I bet it's definitely colder than it is here, right? It is. <laughs> and our guest today is the Jared Wilkert, not just Jared Wilkert, the Jared Wilkert.
2: Hello, I'm, uh, I'm here in Indianapolis. And Devlin, I will be in Oslo in a couple of months doing a teaching a two day view workshop. So that's kind of serendipitous. Oh yeah, definitely. So uh, yeah, let, let's meet. Let's meet here. Yeah, we
1: have uh, a yeah. U- uh, user group here. It's really active. They do a uh, monthly meetups.
2: Oh, very cool. I'll look into that. I'll be there for the NDC Oslo.
3: Springboard offers the first online self-paced software engineering bootcamp with a job guarantee. Become a software engineer or get your money back. You'll be mentored by senior software engineer or technical leader who has worked at companies like Microsoft, Intuit, and Amazon. Springboard has helped graduates increase their salary by an average $25,000 a year. Make a risk-free investment in yourself and apply now. For a limited time, use the code JABBER, unique to our podcast listeners, to get $500 off the course. That's springboard.com. Our topic
0: today that we're going to start out with is snapshot testing in view. So before we get started on that, Jared, why don't you give us a little background on who you are, why you're famous, and anything (laughs) else you want to tell us about?
2: Sure. So I have a degree in commercial art and graphic design. So I went from a designer background into IT, sysadmin stuff. And then from that, met someone who was going from IT into programming and kind of followed along with him and taught myself how to code. I've been doing front-end web development for a long time. I am at my current position at Worldwide Technology, where I'm a senior software engineer. And our team here in Indianapolis uses Vue in our projects. Outside of work, I am pretty heavily involved in the tech community here in Indianapolis. I've given several dozen talks on many different topics. I'm a co-organizer of the Free Code Camp Indie Meetup Group with my friend Gwen, who's actually Gwen Faraday. She's been on the show before. And in 2017, I started the Vue.js Indie Meetup Group, and we've been going ever since then. I'm still an organizer of that. And we actually just had a meeting on Monday, and it went really well. Yeah, outside of work in the tech community, I spend a lot of time working on side projects and making a lot of open source stuff. So I've made a lot of different libraries and tools and um, full-on applications that uh, we can talk about if, if, if we get to that stuff. But in the Vue world, I've, I've created a boilerplate for making desktop apps using Vue and Vue CLI and Vue dev tools and all of that. And I've also recently published a new library for doing just snapshots with Vue. And that's something that we're, we're going to dive into in a moment. So that's kind of my my quick spiel. Yeah, okay. So let's
0: head down that road. I know testing is something that all developers love doing and really enjoy. <laughs> and I'm sure snapshot testing is is an extension of that. So why don't you tell, talk a little bit about what snapshot testing is, just for those who might not be familiar with it, and then sure. your tool and how it addresses
4: that issue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the concept is, like with all tests, the the point is to have confidence in your code. So you feel good when you go back and you change stuff and you know you're not going to break anything. So Jest has a particular feature called to match snapshot. And the idea behind that is maybe you have uh, a test and in it there's a variable and you want to see what is it equal. The variable equals a specific string kitten. And then you can just type that in and that's fine. But what if it's not a string? What if it's like a really, really big object? And if you put that in your test, it's going to be half of your file. It's going to be a huge chunk of stuff that's kind of getting in your way. So they created this two match snapshot feature and it will take in what you're expecting and then it will compare it to that giant object that's stored in a different file. So that's kind of the idea to compare against something else. With view, you can actually do that with your components. So you can take a snapshot of your mounted component in your test and see what the DOM would actually look like at that moment. So you could see all of the divs and the H1s and all of the other content. And that's really useful if you have logic in your template of your components. So if you have like a VIF or maybe you have a class that gets toggled and you want to make sure that in this scenario based off of what the user would have done at this point in the test, that the DOM would look the way you'd expect it to. So it actually, the first time you run a snapshot, it will just take whatever's passed in and it will save that directly to a file. And then every time after that, it will compare against it. Does that, does that match up with how you guys understand snapshots?
0: No, actually. And this is sort of interesting because you had mentioned in your autobiography that you came from from a design background. That was your initial training, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, snapshot testing has always been, whenever I've thought of snapshot testing, it's always been from a UI standpoint. So, you know, if I change uh, some HTML or CSS from my front end and take a snapshot of the, you know, before and then an after and see if anything's changed from the UI standpoint. So the way you explain the snapshot testing makes sense, but at least my perception has always been snapshot testing is from a a front-end UI standpoint as compared to a code standpoint, comparing objects in, in DOM and data structures and so on. Anybody yeah, are, you,
2: are you thinking of like a screenshot testing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Same idea, but uh, different, slightly different terminology. There's a, there's a type of test called visual regression testing, and that's where you take an actual screenshot of what the page looks like and do a pixel-for-pixel pixel comparison. Right. Snapshot testing is... Uh, similar idea, but with just strings of text. Okay. So am I the only one that had
5: that thought? Or did everybody else understand Snapshot to be code object testing? Oh, I'm, I'm one of these really bad developers that is really bad at doing testing. So I didn't have too much opinion. But I just had a quick look at the, your Jest serializer and what it actually outputs. And it looks fantastic because you can really, <laughs> you can really like, visually see it, what the changes are. Yeah, it looks this might sell me on testing. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
5: yeah, it's
2: it's super convenient. It's not like the end all be all for your tests. It shouldn't be every single test, but um here on the main project that I work on at my job, we have around eight hundred and fifty or so tests currently in our in our front end. And of those, about a quarter of them are using snapshots. So it is significant amount we use them basically the the first test i ever write on a new component is always a snapshot because i just want to make sure that everything renders out properly by default so i'll snapshot the whole component once at the the start and make sure everything matches what i expect and then in the future if i make any changes any single change that affects the dom it'll automatically show me exactly on that line in the DOM what changed uh, from what the code used to be like to what it changed to now. And usually that's okay. Like I added a new div and it shows me in the diff that um, there's a new div and that doesn't match the snapshot and that's okay and I can update the snapshot. There's even a command that'll automatically update it for you. But sometimes you make a change in one place and it breaks a snapshot somewhere else and you're like, oh, that makes sense. I didn't think about that. I didn't mean to break that. Let me refactor this and change it so that Uh, It's not going to affect this other component over here or how uh, how the page is rendered in this other scenario. So, yeah, it's very useful. There's some upsides and downsides to it. You do kind of have to learn it. It's a bit of a craft. Taking a full snapshot of the whole component, if it's a really big one, is okay to do like once, but for the rest of your snapshots, you should zoom in on just the part of the component that you're actually going to be testing. So you only take a snapshot of this, you know, child div that's somewhere else inside of the component that you're actually doing your test on. Because otherwise, if every single snapshot is this giant DOM tree that you've um, printed out, then um, making one small change could break like 53 snapshots unintentionally. So that's, that's one of the kind of caveats to it is you have to learn how to zoom in on this, the area, what part you want to zoom in on, and how to like, decide that while you're writing your tests. Another, another caveat is it can be very easy to ignore them because, again, you just add a single div and your snapshot will break. So it's very easy to get into that mindset of, well, there's nothing, you know, I don't need to pay attention to these because every time they break, it's something that I did intentionally. But, you know, they're there for a reason. They really can catch a lot of problems early on and let you know about that. And there's a, a command you can run with Jest where you add the dash U in the CLI and it will automatically update all your snapshots. And that means that it runs all of your tests and whatever is passed in, it'll automatically use that and replace your existing snapshot with that new thing. And um, that's very convenient, but it can also be a downfall if you're not very careful about what you're replacing because you may be overwriting something that was breaking that was actually there to help warn you about something. So that's some of the, the more dangerous aspect of going the snapshot tests. And that's one of the things people have problems with uh, around it. And there's really no great solution. It's really just more of a, of, you know, finding out how to work with them in a way that works best for you. So you don't end up ignoring them or unintentionally overwriting them.
0: I'm looking at the NPM page for this plugin, just serializer view, TJW, really mm-hmm. got a pretty slick GIF or GIF. i cover both sides of that pronunciation that shows uh, the test and how it compa- w- what it highlights during the testing that shows the diff, the old diff and then the new diff. It looks like a, a git you know, comparison that I'll see, you know, some sort of UI, you got highlighted green and highlighted in red, and then allows you to visually see what changed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, that's, and that's from Jest directly. That's a screenshot of what Jest gives you. So if you, if you make a change, and in that in that specific GIF, it'll actually show you that there was some text that changed from the word loading to page is loading. And that was the difference is that that line of text changed. But the, the GIF is swapping back and forth between the defaults that you would get from Vue. When Vue outputs the DOM, it's just going to give you a bunch of DOM nodes as a string. And so those are kind of, oftentimes those will be all on one line, where you just have an h1 and then a space, and then there's a span and a space, and then you've got another div, and they're all just kind of on one line. It's really hard to see if you have one really long line of HTML and just a few characters change, then the diff is very difficult to visually parse quickly and and to read what changed on these two really long lines. And so part of what the Serializer does, and maybe I should explain what Serializer is first, that... That in your test, when you do an ex- expectation where you're going to pass something in and then you're doing the two match snapshot, there's a step in between where Jest will say, let me pass this into a plugin and it can modify what you've passed in. And then we can compare that against the snapshot or we can store that as the snapshot. So this is that plugin. This is at that middle le- level in between where you've passed in your components. And then this gets passed into my plugin, which is the just Serializer View TJW. It really rolls off the tongue. And that will begin that DOM snapshot, that HTML, and it will format it and add in all those extra returns, that indentation to make it nice and clean. And there's a bunch of other features that it does as well to kind of make snapshot tests a lot more convenient and easier and simpler for you. So that's the gist of what it's doing. It's taking in your components, and then it's converting that over to a string of a DOM, and then it's doing a lot of string manipulation to make it easier to read and prettier. So it's kind of like linting for your snapshots, where you can uh, adjust the formatting of what it would look like in the snapshot, so it's easier to read and look at, like you would kind of what you would expect HTML to look like typically. So that's kind of what the, the tool is for. I can dive into some of the features that it comes with, too. Yeah, go for it. So... You know, not only does it give you this much cleaner formatting, but there's also settings. So if you don't like the way I've chosen to format it, you can actually just pass in your own object with your own settings in it. And um, that's all documented in the API as to what settings you can pass in and what the defaults are so you can modify that and tweak that. Maybe, you know, maybe you don't like two spaces for your HTML. Maybe you want four or you want tabs or something else. Or you you want to, if there's a div and there's no content continent, it has an in div and you want that to be on two separate lines, all of that's possible. You have full control over that formatting wise. Some of the other features, and this is a, a really important one to me, is it will automatically remove data dash V IDs. So if you have, um, if you're using scoped styles in view, so in view, you've got your template and your script and your style section, you can add in that scoped attribute, and that scopes all your styles to your component. The way Vue actually does that is it appends a data attribute to every single element in the component, and it will be a data dash V dash and then an ID of letters and numbers, and that unique ID is specific to that component. So all of your CSS will also have that attribute selector appended to them so that they will only be applied to that component. Your styles won't leak out anywhere else. And that's super useful. It's a really clever solution. It's one of the things I originally saw with you and got really excited about. And was like, that's a really good idea. I like how they're doing that. The downside is if you are pulling in a third-party library like vCalendar or Vue good Table, those are really good libraries that I use. And those libraries happen to scope their styles in this way, which those two examples I mentioned do, then that means... If you do a deep mount of your component and it has those third party, uh, third party child components in it, those dependencies, then their data VIDs will show up in your snapshots. And that's not a huge deal up front because it's just, it's kind of cru- it's some extra crup you don't care about. It's just kind of in the way. It's, it's something you don't want to see. But the problem comes when you go to update that dependency. When it does a new release and you pull in that new release, every release will have different data-v IDs. So all of your snapshots will break, and the only thing that changed was the IDs. So it's a really annoying hassle that we've had to deal with before here at work, where I'll update View Goodtable and 53 snapshots break, and all that changed were these data-v IDs. So this new tool that I'm talking about, the Just Serializer View (TJW), it will automatically strip out all of these data dash VIDs so that you don't have that problem anymore. So anyone out there who's been using snapshots and they ran into this, they're probably already Googling the the name, just serializer view TJW because that alone is worth the the price of admission. So, so useful to have that. But there's a bunch of other stuff that it strips out too. There's a data test attributes. And I think maybe we can talk a little bit about that and data QA can be removed but it's disabled by default and maybe we can talk a little bit about that if you guys are interested in the difference for how you target elements in your dom for your tests but yeah it has a few other features like that like being able to remove all html comments if you don't want those in your snapshots you can enable that Um, and all of the settings are available in your view config file so if you have a project set up with the cli it comes with a view.config.js file in the root and you would just throw in an object inside of that, and that'll be all of your settings, and this, this tool will handle that for you. So that's kind of the, the big rundown of the major features of it.
4: That's cool. You, you, you covered a whole lot there, so I had to kind of like take notes so I wouldn't interrupt. But I do have some questions. First, when you mentioned the, the unique IDs for the scoped styles that Vue provides, instantly thought about that breaking tests. And it makes sense from a third party perspective because they make a new build and they have new IDs, but is it not the case that your component using scope styles would then also have some generated ID that would break every new build and therefore break your previous snapshots? Yeah. So
2: you, you're editing your source code. I mean, you're testing your source code files. So the, while you're working against that, you're not getting all of those attributes, those data-v attributes in your own tests and your snapshots. It really only affects you when it comes down to these child dependencies, and this is only in your tests and in these snapshots. It has nothing to do with your your actual build. Um, your build will still use the scoped um, CSS if that's what you've you've enabled in your component.
4: Yeah, that covers my question because I wasn't sure where at what point the IDs would be added to the component, because when you see the snapshot that Jest creates, it is a bunch of markup. It is the output of what the component logic would render. Yeah, it sounds like the the IDs are not included in there.
2: Yeah, the, the data B IDs, from my understanding, do not uh, show up in... Uh, I'm not actually using scope styles on any of my projects right now, so I don't know for certain. But whether or not they, they show up, they shouldn't in your components. But if you're pulling in a third-party library that has already been compiled and it has, it's already been compiled to render functions, then that would be like baked into the DOM at that point for those components. So this is just to uh, alleviate that, that one specific scenario. And, and that would only even happen in your test if you're doing a deep mount. If you're mounting your, your components in your test, if you're doing a shallow mount, then uh, that will just mount your component and it will stub in any child component, whereas a deep mount will mount your component and all of its child components all the way down. So it does a full deep mount versus a shallow mount. So if you're doing a shallow mount and uh, you won't run into this issue either. So it's only for this one specific case where you have a deep mounted component with a third party library that has scope styles. But that does happen. In, it is a pain. So this is meant to fix that problem.
4: Yeah. I'm glad that you touched on the deep mount versus shallow mount because I was curious. Well, just curious. I have opinions about testing, but I'd like to hear for some, from someone that uses snapshots a lot. Do you generally do a snapshot of, of, of a deep mounted component or a shallow mount?
2: It's really dependent on the test. In general, it's,
4: it's recommended to use shallow
2: mounts as much as possible and to switch over to a deep mount when you have a reason to. As I mentioned before, we, we use a lot of snapshot tests. You know, about a quarter of our tests have the minute. And that first snapshot I always do, when, I, or that first test I always write, is to do a snapshot of the whole component. And for that, I'll usually do a deep mount to make sure that I just get everything in one snapshot and it's all, all in place and that it's what I expect. Because sometimes you want to know that when I update this third-party component library that's maintained by one guy in Iowa that, you know, he didn't accidentally introduce a bug because sometimes I'm the first person to update to that and I will go and uh, add, a, add a, an issue on GitHub and say, hey, I ran into this bug. Um, so for those cases where you need to interact with these third-party components, you want to see how your app is interacting with them and that exchange between the two. Then it's very useful to be able to do a deep mount. But again, in, in general, it's recommended to stick with shallow mounting for most of your components. And there's a lot of philosophy around testing when it comes to like TDD or very strict unit testing versus very strict integration testing. And that's really up to I'm not here to tell you what philosophy to follow or what ideology. Uh, so that's that's really up to you or your team to discuss what approach you'll do for testing. I think ultimately the goal is just to make sure that you're confident that you can change your code down the line that you're not breaking anything while you change it and as long as you're doing testing in a way where you have that level of confidence i think you're doing okay i am curious what you guys are doing for testing though i heard on a previous podcast you guys mentioned you uh, were using curious what your thoughts are on testing Um, My thought is
0: that testing is a necessary evil
2: uh... (laughs) you are very wise
1: (laughs) I had some uh, had, uh, experience in testing whenever I, I you know, I, like wishing uh, like on my next project that would be like testing useful, What happens like these customers that I had in, the, in previous companies, it's like 90% that they don't test, they write, they don't write tests in their application. So problem is whenever I like wishing, uh, you know, I can improve my testing skills what happens is uh, I usually encounter projects without, without testing. So, do you have any like survey that tells how many companies or percentage of companies usually that do a write tests in the application? Uh, I think that uh, three years ago there were like fifty percent of companies write tests and you know but that was a uh, three years ago a survey. I wonder what's the, what's the survey now
2: yeah I, I don't I'm not familiar with the statistics for that just yeah I, I don't know what what percentage it's at. It would change a lot depending on the industry you're in and the type of thing you're building. And also, like, I worked at a very large tech company, and there were definitely teams there that were doing testing. But the team I was on had zero tests. So it's also kind of a a team-by-team thing or project-by-project thing as well. So I'd be very skeptical of whatever statistics there are. And that really shouldn't even be, like, a determining factor. It should really just be, like, is this a project that I know I'll still be working on in five years um, or will still exist in five years, and someone else will be working on it. And if that's the case, it's definitely worth the time to uh, to put up with that necessary evil of testing. Yeah, yeah. The way I see it, it's usually uh, it's about the budget
1: of the company, of of the the client, of the customer.
0: Well, not necessarily. Maybe even the budget is is just the time. You know, my previous uh, organization, we had some uh, you know three basically large websites that were all integrated together and tied together with with Apache Solar. And we were always talking about, yeah, we need to test, write tests, but, you know, time crunches and and deadlines and releases and all that stuff end up, you know, just outweighing yeah. the, weighing that. And, oh, no, we still can't get to the testing, you know. I was fortunate in where I'm at now when I came in. I took over a large view app that was already partially written, and the developer had integrated quite a number of Jest tests. And so... It made it easier for me because I prefer to learn by like example, you know, and seeing stuff that's already working. And so I've been able to to get a good grasp of the Jest tests and how they work and and how to piece them all together and stuff. So it's been a good learning experience for me. What I've found is as I'm going along and making you know large changes to the uh, UI. And to, you know, the functionality that in the components and it's the app overall that a lot of times I have to modify my test to update with my new structure. <laughs> I think I've had a couple of times where tests have caught something, but usually when my tests fail, what I found is that it's the assumptions that the tests were based on are no longer valid because underlying data structure or other functionality has changed. So I have to modify my test to, to match the new reality. But, but yeah, it's been a good experience, at least for me to, to. To get a real life example of how testing works and how to build those test tests,
2: yeah, and and on that same topic of having to maintain those tests and having the the time and the budget to get around to doing that, that's one of the the great sage wisdoms that I, I got from my previous boss Sean, who you know he was a big proponent of doing testing, and we've been doing it a lot in this project um, for the past two two and a half years since day one. And the, one of the first things he said was, you know, we are building an app. We, that, our job is to build the app. Our job is not to maintain a test suite. So, you know, write test in a way that if it's, if it's something where it's going to take you a week to be able to get this test to work because it's so finicky and so difficult and so hard to set it up properly, then, you know, Maybe that's an edge case that we allow, and we don't need to have 100% test coverage. It's kind of like a siren song that pulls you towards it, and that can take a lot of time to reach that 100%. Now, with that said, we're somewhere around like 90 or 94%. We're still pretty good, but it's never something that we've uh, ever targeted specifically, any code coverage number. But yeah, every, every time you change something, it's going to break your existing tests, and you have to go back and refactor and maintain those. What is, your,
0: what is your approach for writing tests? Do you take the test-driven development method where basically you write your tests and then, or figure, write your code in a way that you know it can be testable, or do you tend to write your code and then come back around and, and write your test for it later?
2: The latter, yeah. I understand the process for TDD, and I have a few personal side projects where I, I go to that above and beyond and cover every single test case and scenario. But I've never actually done the full-on TDD approach. And here at work, it's it's more of a process of get it to work first, and then um, make sure that you're you're building it in a in a sound way that you know is easily maintainable, and then write the test for it to make sure that nothing will break in the future. So that's kind of the process that we tend to do. We're a pretty small team, so we can handle that approach. TDD is very interesting, though. It's it's fairly alluring, but it also seems like with the where we are with testing right now and the tools that we have for it, I don't know if um, if it's even possible. Honestly, I've been doing some testing in in a Node only project, just a Node.js library that I've been working on, and it seems like only seventy percent of stuff around the file system can be done in testing. Like when you're trying to mock your file system and um, just lots of weird edge cases where libraries that handle the stuff for you conflict with each other. And I feel like we're, we're finally getting a lot more people in the JavaScript world talking more about testing in the last year or so. And maybe we'll start to get more people have those frustrations and start improving things and trying to make uh, better tools around stuff. That's kind of what led me to build that just Serializer View BJW library.
0: There tend to be some pretty strong, when it comes to to tests and writing tests whether it's tdd or or the other way around i can already hear people in the background screaming no tdd is the way to go you know but uh you know my opinion has always been you do what works best for your given situation because tdd may work great in some situations but not others
2: yeah i mean It it comes down to, you know, which is better jogging on a treadmill or, or, you know, doing free, free weights. The fact that you're going to the gym is great. (laughs) Like, let's just start there. Like, let's get everybody going to the gym first, doing some type of testing and and being familiar with it and understanding the terminology and the practice. I think that's, that's good enough, you know, get people in the door and not everyone has to be a bodybuilder.
0: Yeah, I personally would run with the free weights, but that's a topic (laughs) for another podcast.
4: So Steve, what you're saying is that you write tests to make sure that your TDD is testing properly? That's right. I test my tests to make sure that they're accurate.
2: Well, I have a project for you. The View Test Utils is looking for people to help out with it. They're they're working their way. So if you want to write tests that test your testing utilities tests, they are looking for help.
0: All right, I'll make sure and uh, jump right in on that. But yeah, cool. I think that's, so, that's
2: uh, important news in there too for people in the view VU world. Um, Vue test utils will, has been in beta since 2017 and there's three new maintainers that are working on it that, that I know of. And they are trying to get it ready to a version one and be fully compatible with... Um, View 3, so that when View 3 comes out, View Test Utils can hit that version 1 and everybody can update to it. So I'm very excited for that. I'm really happy that that, that team of people is working so hard with Vue Test Utils. Very excited and looking forward to,
0: to that coming out. So this is something that you would use instead of Jest? Is that correct? View Test Utils? Yes.
2: Uh, View Test Utils is a library. It's officially maintain, maintained by the View core team. And it is a uh, It sits on top of whatever your testing library is, if that be um, Jest or Mocha and chai, whatever that is. Uh, view Util sits on top of that and just gives you a lot of utilities so you can do things like being able to shallow mount or deep mount your components and access parts of Vue and be able to more easily write uh, component level tests with Vue. So it gives you a lot of nice stubs. Like if you're using Vue Router, there's a uh, Vue Router link stub that you can throw in that it comes with, stuff like that. It just has a lot of niceties to make your life easier when you're trying to do testing with Vue. Cool. Anything or a little
1: more on the testing uh, front that we want to address? Oh, yeah. Uh, Jared, can you also use this uh, Vue Test ut- Utils? On, like, static site generator, Vue.js. Like, what is that again? Read
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's, you, it is. Vue test utils is compatible with server side yeah. rendered systems like Nuxt, for example. So oh. it, it can work with those as well.
3: Mm, good. It's nice. One of the most popular pairings for Vue on the front end is Laravel or PHP on the back end. If you're setting up and running a PHP app, then why hassle with all the back end config? Instead, count on CloudWays. Cloudways provide the solution that will have you up and running quickly. They offer exceptional performance and reliability and 24-7 support. So your website or your web app, which is probably crucial to your business, will run in an environment designed for it. Go run it on Cloudways. If you use the code DEVCHAT, you'll get 30% off for three months.
4: So Jared, the plugin that you created is, is it, yeah, it's specifically for Jest, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. And that's and and that's because to my knowledge, there's no other testing tools out there other than just that have this snapshot feature.
4: Yeah, I think with like uh Mocha, I mean there's some there's some snapshotting tools that work inside of other testing libraries, but Jest has Just is the only one that I know of that has it built in as well. So what I was gonna ask is, you know, why Jest? I mean I, I understand why you would why this plugin that you've created is specifically for Jest because that's the one that supports it. So, why does your team choose just over, I don't know, Mocha and Chai or Test Cafe or whatever hundred other ones are available?
2: Yeah, Ava or, or, you know, Karma or JUnit or whatever. Yeah, there's a million of them. The, my, my general feeling towards all of these different testing options is they're all very similar they're very samey like the syntax will be slightly different but basically what they're doing is the same and a lot of them are like well this is the way it's done in ruby so i've made a javascript library that does it that way this is the way it's done in python so i made a javascript library that does it that way so that's kind of a following like a traditional stance as to how testing is done elsewhere and trying to adopt that and shift it over to javascript just as the only one that stands out to me as something that's trying to innovate and trying to change stuff and trying to push us towards some newer ideas when it comes to this unit testing world, like the snapshots, for example. But there's also just a lot of little things that I have a problem with with different testing tools when it just comes to a clean code standpoint. Like there's a, there's that Robert C. Martin, Uncle Bob book, Clean Code, and it's got a whole chapter on just naming your variables and you know, there's certain things that we that people who do testing they do stuff in their tests that you don't do anywhere else in the coding world. Like you never structure any of your code in a sentence format, or you write your stuff as a as to be read as a sentence. And that's not really a culturally a phenomenon that you see in the JavaScript world. And like, I'm not a big fan of the naming convention for stuff like it. Like if you have if you want to name um, a really good name for a function that should describe what that function does. And if it's really well named, it should give you a hint as to what you pass into it, what, what, what that function will ultimately return. So like, get user avatar. That's a great function name. It tells you, what does it do? It gets the user avatar. What do you think gets passed in? Probably the user ID. What do you think gets returned? Probably a, a, a string of the URL of, the, of where the avatar is. Something like that. It gives you a pretty good idea from the name, but if you ask somebody, what does the function it do? It, you know, it's 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 stuff like that. It's also really hard to just find that to do a search for these two-letter strings. It's almost as bad as a single-character variable name. So there's just a lot of uh, stuff where there's this chaining of stuff of expect thing dot to dot b a dot really dot cool dot expectation dot name that just seems you know you're when you chain stuff together um, like methods it's usually a hierarchical structure and there we're arbitrarily using that dot notation to form a sentence and it just seems like it violates these principles of clean code so i look at Justin and i see that they're they have an alias for their test called it but by default all their documentation names their tests test and they seem to at least, and all of their expectation stuff is dot to match snapshot instead of dot two dot match dot snapshot, that kind of stuff where they're those little things that bother me. I feel like uh, just at least doesn't do any of those things, but ultimately, like, I feel like there's just so much room for the testing world to evolve and to expand and to try new things. Uh, a lot of it is just based off of tradition. And I feel like that's, That's the same thing as saying, why do you do it that way? Well, because we've always done it that way. And that's not a good reason. So I'm really hopeful that the JavaScript world will be very innovative and try new stuff. The same way that we've seen in the last decade, this huge evolution in the JavaScript framework world to go from jQuery to Backbone to Angular to um, React and to Vue. And you see this evolution where everything's building on the previous thing and taking ideas from it and... Trying new stuff. I'd really like to see that in the uh, the testing world, where people are building on top of stuff and trying out new ideas and experimenting and trying to make testing easier and to solve more cases and simpler and follow the same patterns that the rest of your code follows. That's my idealistic goal of the future. I I hope that we get to that utopian JavaScript society one day. But that's why I go with Jest. It's the best option currently, but you know I'm still hopeful for even better stuff down the line.
4: Yeah, I'm with you on that. There's a lot of there has been some interesting innovations in the testing world regarding writing tests that you just describe a sentence or something. I'm thinking of things like cucumber or gherkin, maybe something like that. But yeah, some of these tests that other testing tools that I've seen, they're like innovating, but not quite like I still use jest, I like it. And you know, in the case of we do it this way because We've always done it this way. You know, sometimes it's also a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, till, till something comes out that smacks us in the face and says, maybe it'd be cool if uh, something specific to your component library, like Vue or React, and you say, these are all the props that I have, go and infer what sort of tests you can make on it, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. If, if there was just like an automated, like it just te- tests a bunch of stuff by default and so you don't even need to write a test. It just right at the gate does stuff. So that'd be neat. But yeah, I mean, we'll get there one day. I'm I'm confident.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because once you have I mean, if you take advantage of the view props and the typing, like the the strictly the strict typing that you can provide into view props, then you can to some degree write some tests for that, right? Like if it's a number prop, I can pass in one, negative one, zero, a thousand, and just kind of automatically write some tests to see what what it's supposed to do right yeah i mean at that
2: point it's already kind of baked in for you it's already handling those edge cases you've already defined that prop has a specific type and you can even have custom validators and verify that that's accurate so like linting alone could cover that for you and there's already the eslint view plugin that handles a ton of uh, nice recommended uh, approaches for how to do view components and the linter can catch a lot of stuff for you where like you're doing a V4 and you don't have a key on it, and that's, that can run into issues. So the linter will catch that. Those kind of things where it can actually help prevent errors. And then you can also enforce that all of your props have a fully defined object that tells the type, and if it's required, if it has a default, if it has a custom validation. So I think from a quality control standpoint, uh, um, using a re- really strict linter is something that, that alone can be a big, a big win for a lot of teams if they're not already doing that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if you're not doing that, you should do that first before going down the testing route. It's it's a much easier win to just implement strict testing, strict linting.
4: I know that uh, you said that your plugin kind of supports out of the box the view the view CLI config configuration file. Do you have is there a view CLI plugin that you can you know use the view CLI to say um, view what is it view add just serialize view tjw there
2: is not. Uh, I've never written one of those. I've never set that up before. But that's a good idea. Right now, it's it's there's uh, like a three step process where you npm install this, and then you make a, a change in your jest config, and then you update your snapshots. And optionally, you can if if you want to change the settings, then you can add it into your view config file. But but the defaults are designed to be what you know ninety nine percent of people would want. So. You don't actually need to add anything to your view config at all by default. That's only if you want to tweak the settings or opt into some of these optional features that it has. But yeah, I mean having a a Vue CLI plugin would be pretty cool, but I've never done that before. So that'd be something that I could add a GitHub issue for and hopefully get some help from someone who hears the podcast. If they want to contribute to it.
4: Yeah, it'd be cool if you just like added the files that you need or the just serializer. Um, like mm-hmm. even just an empty object to the plugin options and make mm-hmm. the change to the Jest file.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. Make it a little bit easier for adoption.
4: I feel like when someone comes on to Jest for the first time, that snapshot testing is such a cool, fancy, innovative sort of feature that you can't help but, but play with it, right? Because there's, like we said, there's not... A lot of other libraries out there that just have it built in and so it's super easy to implement and then I remember running it my first several times and saying cool I don't even have to write integration tests or too many unit tests I can just rely on the snapshots that I'm taking and sure enough time goes by and I have to change a CSS class that doesn't affect the actual component but suddenly all of my Tests are failing because the snapshot doesn't match and I know that we touched on this already but to me that was a that was a point of contention strong enough that I no longer Write snapshot tests like I just I just don't like them. I don't like having to update them I don't like having to track them in my Git repo and how uh, sort of fickle and fragile they are so Having spoken with you earlier and you touching on all these subjects and still saying that your team does snapshot testings, I'd like to hear what keeps you in it and keeps the value on the other side of, of the pendulum for you. Sure. What you touched on is, is the, the main complaint
2: people have for it. And I think this is really just a, a preference. Like there's different types of people and some people will like this and some won't be able to stand it. It's just a, a different approach to doing tests. The thought process for me is I can write a test and I can mount my component, and I can look in it and detect on this specific element, on this, this div, what classes does it have right now. And I can write a test to specifically get that attribute, that class, and verify that it equals what I expect. And, and maybe it's not a div, maybe it's, a, it's an anchor tag, it's an A tag. And I also want to check to make sure that the href is accurate and also has a title on it. I want to make sure the title is accurate. So I've written three tests there, and it handles those three attributes on that element. And maybe that's all you need. Maybe that's, that's fine. But the, the thing is that what happens if I add another attribute with some dynamic stuff? It's not immediately obvious that I need to go back and update this test and add that in and cover that new dynamic attribute and, and write tests for that. It can be pretty easy to overlook that. And this gets way more complicated when you have a much more complex uh, s- uh, series of elements where it's not just a single A tag or a single div, but you have a whole you know, family of, of elements that have a bunch of interactivity on them. Maybe it's like a table, for example, and there's every table cell has custom properties and custom components that could be inside of it. And at that point, you'd be writing thousands of these one-off tests that would be very brittle it'd be hard to remember to add a new ones that kind of approach so when you have something like that that's the perfect scenario for a snapshot where you could just snapshot whatever the the highest level uh, dom element is that contains everything you care about and validate that it matches what you expect and that will catch that class and that title and that href and also any other attributes added to in the future and any other um, text node changes that occur with it or any, you know, anything that changes in the parent selector. So it, it, it's kind of a way of replacing a thousand tests with one, but it also means that you need to treat that one test as though it's a thousand. So that, that snapshot, anytime it changes, you need to very carefully look at that and make sure that the change that occurred is exactly what you meant. And, you know, in that scenario where, you know, a class name gets rewritten and um, you rename a class across your whole code base and then all of your snapshots break because of that. That's a real easy fix. You know, you can check and see that the only thing that's breaking the snapshots is that class rename. And there's a single command that'll update all of your snapshots to include that new, new scenario. It's, it's the other cases where you have more complex logic in the DOM and you have a, a test set up to cut that scenario where the user has clicked on this thing and then they typed in that and they clicked on that and they clicked on this and then the DOM is in this state and there's an error message being displayed and the error message has a dismissal X in the corner and it has the specific message that's supposed to show up and not this other error message. You know, taking a snapshot of that, you know, that's really valuable when when that's the scenario you got into and you want to make sure that this is what the DOM will actually look like if the user did do all of those steps. Um, that kind of thing is where it's very useful. But yeah, again, it's not every test needs it. And, um, and there's a craft to it where you do have to spend a lot of time getting used to finding the right level of detail for each one of these snapshots. And maybe the the real issue isn't that you change a class name and it breaks all of your tests and you just fix that. Maybe the real issue is, you know, why did changing this one class name break so many tests? Maybe those tests need to be zoomed in on just the area that they're focusing on so that if that is an annoyance, you know, dig into that. Ask yourself, why is that an annoyance? Is it because the thing that I changed is unrelated to this test? And if that's the case, then that's just, you know, kind of learning as you go as to how to do snapshots better. But again, it's a preference thing. It's not going to be for everyone. Um, I'm a, I'm a very detail-oriented person, so the snapshots work really well for me. And uh, the rest of my team seems to be doing okay with them. But that is still a, a still a thing where you need to be willing to treat the snapshot as more than just a, a string of HTML. You need to look at it a little bit more deeply and and put some more trust into it. It's going to help you eventually because it will. It, eventually, something will will break in your snapshot that you didn't intend for, it, and we will catch that for you. And that happens to us probably once every week and a half, once every two weeks, uh, a snapshot will, will catch something that we didn't mean for, mean to affect.
4: Uh, so they are pretty useful. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think, I think after this conversation, I'll, I'll probably take a look at it again, but you said something that that did interest me, which is, Can you, if I'm, if I'm writing a test for a component, I'm using view test utils to do either a shallow mount or deep mount or whatever, but I mount my component. Can I drill down into just one little like dom node and do a snapshot on that? Oh, you can.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of that that library that I, I was talking about earlier that I made. There's a lot of different ways to target different elements in your components. So let's kind of imagine a real simple component. You've got a component and at the root, your root level element is just a div, and inside of that you've got a, uh, a, a checkbox and a link with a class of A on it. And when you check the checkbox, the class of A is removed and it's replaced with a class of B. So you check and uncheck, you're just toggling a class of A and B, and that's our component, real simple. You can mount that component in your test, And you can target specifically just that checkbox and trigger a click event on that. And then you can target just the the A tag, that link with the class of A or B on it. And you can target just that one A tag and take a snapshot of it. And there's a lot of different ways you can target those. The general best practice is to use a data attribute, data-test equals, and then a unique token of some kind so data dash test equals my my checkbox and data dash test equals my link and then in your test you can target and find the elements inside of that component that has a data test attribute of my checkbox and then do a, a trigger that click event and target that element with the data dash test of the my link and take a snapshot of it so you can totally do that you can zoom in on just those areas and that's that, that approach of how you target stuff, with that deep test test, the reason why that's a best practice is because you could also target it with like a CSS class name. But as you just mentioned, those change all the time. You know, if you upgrade from Bootstrap 3 to 4, then half your class names just got renamed. Or, you know, you, you work for a company and the company branding changed. And now we're going to be purple instead of green as a company. And The new design system came out. And all of that changed. So all of our class names get updated. So if you're targeting based off of that, that makes your how you're targeting that element in your test a little bit more brittle because your CSS class names could change. And also kind of can, has this weird conflating of concerns if you're targeting um, using an HTML ID or a, or a class name on an element. Because then when you go to refactor and you do want to switch out a design system or a CSS framework, maybe you're switching from one version of Bulma to another or Bootstrap or Foundation or whatever then you have this moment where you have to ask yourself, you know, should I, I know that the CSS class isn't actually going to apply any styles anymore, but I think it might be used by a test. So I don't want to remove it just in case. And that's never a good scenario to be in where you are leaving in vestigial code um, just in case. So if you separate that out and you just have a unique unique identifier, of data-test equals, and then whatever your token is, then that means that you know that that's only ever used for testing. It's not going to be targeted by your JavaScript or your logic. It's not going to be used by your styling. That, that data dash test would uh, today show up in your snapshots, but the, the library I made will
4: automatically remove that also so that it makes your snapshots a little bit cleaner. But that's how you would target stuff. Are you passing the same token across the entire app or a unique token for each different node that is getting that data attribute? It's... It's up to you,
2: it works just like a CSS selector would. Yeah. So if you did like a, a query selector for all or whatever and you, you targeted the data dash test equals kitten and there's multiple elements in the DOM that have that then it will find all of those. So in the view test utils, you have a dot find that you can use and that will return the first version the first element that has that. And there's a dot find all. So maybe you have a bulleted list and every element in that list has the same data-test attribute of list item. Then you could target that and you could do a find all with that list item and it would return every single element that has that. So you could then loop over that in your test and do some logic around something there or you have that ability to find an individual or multiple items. But the, the token name... If you only want it to, to work for that one checkbox, you don't want anything else to ever find it, then it would have to be a unique identifier that's not used anywhere else. You have to do some type of namespacing there.
4: And does the, does the snapshot take a DOM node or a string or a, like query identifier? So in, in Jest, you have an expect
2: and you pass whatever you want into that. And then there's the dot to match snapshot. If you pass in a okay, string, right, right. It'll, it'll take a snapshot of the string. If you pass in the view test Utils wrapper for your component from where you've mounted your components and you store that in a little wrapper variable, then that object gets passed in and view Test Utils will convert that to the outer HTML version and convert that object to an HTML string and then do all the string manipulation on it. Or you can pass in the string up front and it will just take that in and it'll understand the difference of if you passed in a string of HTML or if you passed in a wrapper object. Cool.
3: Awesome. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out.
0: So with that, we're going to move into PIX. Jared, are you familiar with PIX? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Since you're the guest, we'll go ahead and let you go first then.
2: Okay. My pick is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is a a movie about a journalist's interactions with Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. It's based on a true story. Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. It's really good. Highly recommend it. And I think anything in society that reminds people of Fred Rogers and to be a nice person is is a good thing. So, it's a cool movie. Uh, it came out in November, but it's still in theaters where I live, so you may be able to go actually see it on a nice Sunday matinee. Pick your mom; she'll love it. Yeah, I've heard lots of good things about that movie.
1: righty. Devlin, do you have any picks for us? Yes, I have a pick. It's Calvin and Hobbes. Since last night, I saw that they already have an Instagram. So yeah, Calvin and Hobbes. It's a it's a comic uh, book. In US, it's uh, yeah. It's a cartoon comic book, and you'll find a lot of things about morals, ethics, philosophy, and human psychology in Calvin and Hobbes. And it's also a great way to, to learn a second language. The, the version of that in, in Norway is Tommy or Tigern. In Spanish, it's Calvin e Hobbes. So I don't know in, in your country if you know, there's a translation of Calvin e Hobbes. But anyway, it's a good you know, comic book to, to learn if you're planning to learn a second language. So. Yeah, Calvin and Hobbes. I highly uh, recommend that.
0: Yeah, I I always remember that when my, my kids were real little, my my oldest two, they would read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes. And it wasn't until then that I realized the amount of adult humor that was in there because they were constantly coming to me with questions. What does this mean? What does this mean? And I kept having to
1: explain stuff. It's like, hmm, there's a lot of adult comedy in, the, in that cartoon. Kind of, kind of, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that yeah, he tells all, you know, true things about you know humans and about the world so definitely you you know anyone can learn something from it really really nice things
5: yeah that's a classic dean you're up yeah i've got two picks my first pick is if you haven't seen it the witcher series on netflix i haven't played the game so i don't know how true to the game it is but i really enjoyed the the netflix uh series for that that was a lot of fun and then I guess a more technical pick is dailynow.co. It's actually a Chrome extension. I think it probably has a Firefox extension too. It replaces your new tab page with basically tech news. You choose what topics you're interested in. But I find a lot of really interesting stuff on that. And I just like seeing what's going on in the tech industry. And it's nice to be able to do control T on my on my Chrome browser. And every now and then I see something that catches my interest and dive into it. So yeah. It's pretty good. Groovy, man. All
4: right, Austin, you're up. Yeah, let's see. My picks today are going to be, well, in line with some of the discussion from today, I'm going to pick uh, the package at type slash jest. And I just like that because I use VS Code and it puts it gives me IntelliSense for all of the jest um, methods and options available. So when I'm writing tests, I can auto-complete. Also, the Vue ESLint plugin and their, their recommended settings from the Vue team. So if you've seen the Vue style guide and you're using VS Code and you're using ESLint, it'll give you little red squigglies or yellow squigglies when you're doing something that doesn't uh, conform to the Vue recommended settings. And then I'm going to pick Professor Frisbee's most Mostly Adequate Guide to Functional Programming. Currently reading it, functional programming's kind of hot right now and There's a lot of really confusing things, and this is a really good in-depth, but also approachable guide. Does the book come with a free Frisbee by chance? No, but it does come with a free professor.
0: Oh, that's always good. Okay. (laughs) Always useful to have a professor around that you can use. All right. So my pick is a book, and I might have picked it in weeks past. They all run together after a while, to be honest, but I move rather slowly through any recreational reading. A book's called Safely Home. It's written by a pastor named uh, Randy Alcorn, who actually goes to my church. He's rather prolific. Christian author. And it's about the extreme persecution that Christians are in under in China. It was written in 2011, but based on what I've seen in the news, things certainly haven't gotten any better for Chinese Christians. So it's a fictional story uh, based on a character here in the Portland area, but uh, really a powerful book. And probably, I think it's one of those more better well-known books, but really a great, great book. So I think that's all we have for today. We've gone a little bit over an hour. So thank you, Jared. Oh, real quick, before I forget, Jared, if people want to follow you on the internet, what's the best place to do that? What are the best places?
2: The Jared Wilkert at pretty much everything. I'm on dev.2, Medium, Twitter, GitHub, all that stuff. But I've started, as I mentioned before, I make a lot of stuff. I make a lot of open source projects and I've started posting every time I do a new release of something on Twitter. So that'll probably be the easiest way if that's something you guys like so the Jared Wilkert, T-H E J A R E D, All right, good deal. Well, thank
0: you everybody for coming. This has been a very testing episode to do, but a uh, very good one. So thank you. And until next time, we'll see you here on Views on View.
3: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.